Uh, I don't know if you spoke, uh, prayed for five minutes for the whole week or five hours a day. But examine the prayers that you offer. Can you honestly say half of them were dedicated to Thanksgiving? And the other half to petition? See, my fear is, if you're anything like I am, and one of the grave dangers of people who stand up and speak is to project my failures on you, so I apologize if I'm doing that. But it is so easy for me to begin my prayers, thank you, Lord, for this day, and then get on to my 8 million requests. Paul spent half his prayer dedicated to Thanksgiving. And then he gets to his petitions. And he begins his petitions this way, for this reason. I don't want to run past that too fast because I would argue that phrase is going to turn prayer upside down for most of us. The reason Paul is praying is because the church at Colossae had faith in Christ Jesus. They had love abounding for all the saints. They had hope in the gospel. They were bearing fruit and they had a faithful minister. May I summarize the church at Colossae as the ideal church? And Paul says, because you're doing well, I pray for you. Let me see if I can bring it uh, down. I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to stick around and shake anybody's hand. I have to be in Elgin by 1.30, and so I'm going to run out, and I won't shake your hand this week. But imagine uh, next time I'm here, I shake your hand, and I ask that good American question. How are things going? And you say, oh, they are going fantastically. I just got a promotion and raise. My bank account is full. My marriage is the best it's ever been. My kids are actually listening to me. It's exciting at home. And everything in my life is going well. And I say, whoa, whoa. I need to pray for you. <laughs> you laugh because that's not how we view prayer. We view prayer as that, that white box that was in so many of the old buildings that said, in case of fire, break here. We hold prayer as this thing we do when things are doing poorly. But Paul says, because you're doing well, that's the reason I'm praying for you. Because Paul learned a lesson. If we have time, I'd love to go back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is maybe Paul's most personal letter. After being as confrontational in 1 Corinthians as he is in almost any of his letters, he writes this second letter, and he expresses his heart to them. And in chapter 12, he's going to say, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing great revelations, Paul says, God gave me more revelation than any other person in the New Testament. He is responsible for more books than anyone else. And he says, because God used me in such amazing ways, he gave me a thorn in the flesh. Because he knew if he didn't, my head would swell and I would become conceited. I know I'm going to date myself a little bit, so please apologize. I guess you don't care. I apologize to myself. I, I'm dating myself, but when I was in college, it was the time in which the former Soviet Union was falling. And as the former Soviet Union was falling, there was a gentleman who came and spoke at the Bible college I was attending. And he had been in prison in Russia numerous times. And he gave a sermon. And then afterwards, he had a question and answer time. And the very first question anybody wanted to ask is, how did you endure prison? And his answer was startling. He said, in my experience, 90% of true believers can endure persecution. But 90% of true believers fail prosperity. I fear that in modern day America, our God 
is comfort. And we will do whatever it takes to maintain that comfort. Paul says, because you are good. That's the reason I pray. And I've been praying for you since the day I heard about you. This is a little insight into the way Dan's brain works, probably not like yours. How long is that? How long did Paul pray for the church at Colossae? Glad you asked. I brought with me a handy-dandy timeline, because I love timelines. The Apostle Paul went on three missionary journeys. Uh, the first was probably around 46, and he spent the, the next 10 years traveling the Roman Empire, and he went into the synagogues first in whatever city he was in, and he would preach, and when he was kicked out of the synagogues, he would find any room he could, and he would share the good news of Jesus, and eventually he'd be thrown out of all those rooms, and so he would take to the street corner, and while he's making his tents, he would teach, and he would preach, and he would share Jesus with anybody who would listen. But following the end of his third missionary journey, he went to the temple where he was arrested. He was placed in prison for a period of at least a year in Caesarea, and then eventually he, he makes the appeal, I'm a Roman citizen, I can appeal to Caesar. And so he appeals to stand before Caesar, and he makes that horrible trip across the storm in the Mediterranean, he arrives in the city of Rome where he is under house arrest, and while under house arrest, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now, most would suggest that he's writing the book of Colossians at about 62 AD. We know that he had heard of the city of Colossae, at least by his third missionary journey, and very likely on his second missionary journey. And if you can see those small numbers across the top, that means Paul had been praying for the church at Colossae for an entire decade. Once again, I want to be careful not to project my failures on you, but I have to be honest, more than once, I have started asking God for something, and when he doesn't answer, I conclude, I guess it's not God's will, and I move on. How many prayer requests have you been praying for over a decade? George Mueller is one of my favorite individuals from church history. He uh, grew up in Germany in the 18th century, came to Christ, and came to Christ in the midst of a, a group of teenagers who did lots of things for fun that were not always legal and certainly weren't moral. He, to get away from them, moved to England, and eventually he would start a church at an orphanage, and he was known as a man of incredible prayer. But in his diary, Mueller shares that he prayed every single day for each of those teenagers he had hung out with. Two of them came to know Jesus as Savior at his funeral. Do we give up or do we continue to pray day after day, year after year, and yes, if necessary, decade? I was listening to a sermon by Dr. David Jeremiah, and he made this statement that really kind of impacted me. He said, your responsibility is to ask. God's is to answer. But what happens if God doesn't answer? Remember, your responsibility is to ask. Are we praying continually? And then one more comment before we get to the text. Don't run past the we fast. Paul says we 
have not stopped praying for you. We pray. I, I get hundreds of emails every day, and a couple of them I even want. One of them I, I got a while back was an email that had an article entitled, Who Killed the Prayer Meeting? If you're my age, my guess is you remember that it was just expected that church was Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And, and Wednesday night was slightly different, but if I actually am honest, it was very similar to, to church on Sunday morning, other than we sang a couple less songs and the pastor's message was a little bit shorter. And then we would divide up and we would spend time in prayer. Now, I, I, I want to compliment Greenhill because you do still have a prayer meeting. We had it this last Wednesday night. And I thank each of you who were able to come, and I'm not trying to throw a guilt trip on those who didn't. But I think there is something gained when you find yourself with other brothers and sisters praying together. Please don't hear me suggest you shouldn't pray alone. That's not what I'm saying. But there is tremendous value in finding somebody to pray with regularly. Paul says we pray. So what did he pray for? Well, he really is going to throw out uh, two requests. He's first going to ask that they be filled with the knowledge of God, and then secondly, that as a result of them being filled with the knowledge of God, that they would walk worthy uh, of the Lord. He, he begins with this amazing outline. I'm stealing Orville's thunder, so don't tell him I, I threw up an outline, okay? Uh, if you were to look at the book of, of Colossians, it really breaks down along the two major thoughts. So there's, first of all, the doctrinal, how do I think? And then there's the duty, how do I live? Uh, Paul is going to go way out on his limb that before you can act correctly, you must think correctly. But once you think correctly, you must act correctly. Paul prays that you might think correctly so that you can act correctly. May I suggest that Paul in his prayer is foreshadowing what he's going to write in the rest of the book? He wants you to be filled. I think it's really kind of interesting. Paul doesn't say, I want you to know the will of God. He says, I want you to be filled. Now, for most of us, Phil has the idea of a, a cup that I pour water into, and when it gets to the top, it's filled. It's not really the way the word is used in the New Testament. Let me just pick three illustrations. Uh, if you go back to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 16, we're in the midst of the upper room discourse. Jesus has communicated with his disciples one final time that he is about to die. And I don't fully understand what it was about this particular occasion, but the disciples get it. They finally realize that Jesus is in fact going to lead them. And in verse number 6, of John 16, it says, Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. If you haven't ever been filled with grief, you will be. My father passed away uh, back in January of last year. He had many, many health problems. Eventually, he contracted lymphoma, and the lymphoma took him. And his death was not a tremendous surprise. And in many regards, it was a welcome passing from this life to be with the Savior. But he was staying with my sister. My sister's an RN. She was caring for him. And, and I remember all of his kids were around the bed when he took his final breath. I had been commissioned with 
contracting or contacting the, the funeral home to make arrangements to come get his body. We knew the time was short, and so I called the right person wasn't available, and, and so as he takes his final breath, my phone rings. And out of habit, I pick it up and I answer, and it's the funeral And words would not come, because I was filled with grief. Jesus says, you're filled with grief. Let me try another illustration. In Luke chapter 6, it's the story of Jesus the Pharisees try and set him off on the Sabbath. They take a guy who has a withered arm and they bring it in because Jesus is a miracle worker. Therefore, to do miracles on the Sabbath is working because you're a miracle worker. And so they bring this man in and Jesus says, you guys are using him as a prop and he heals him. And it says, but they were filled with fury. Every single one of us has been filled with fury. When you say something, you would never say
And that is a perfectly legitimate translation. But the word actually is walk. The reason why it's a good translation is because none of us walk anywhere anymore. The only thing we walk for is exercise, if that. Walking isn't the normal part of our day. I asked this question to a church a month or so ago. How many walked to church fully expecting nobody to raise their hand, but somebody actually had? They'd walked a mile to church. I was really impressed. I could have walked to church this morning. It would have taken me a little bit of time, but I could have done it, but we don't walk. Walking is an interesting opportunity. Uh, this morning in Hutchinson, there is a, an interim pastor beginning his ministry in Hutchinson. He, he couldn't begin until this morning because he has this weird obsession at the age of 75 for walking. He had to finish the last 546 miles of the Appalachian Trail. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it starts in Georgia, goes to Maine. It's just under 2,200 miles. And I play this clip just because it's not like walking from here to my house. The Appalachian Trail is just a little different. It requires time, effort, energy. You traverse far slower, but I would suggest you see far more. You take the next step, even when the next step is painful because you have no other options. You walk through good places and hard places. Walking was the norm. Paul undoubtedly traveled thousands, probably tens of thousands of miles walking. And thus he uses that illustration of the Christian life. See, in 21st century America, we like to go by airplane. You can traverse the Appalachian Trail in an hour. Tom Truptow's son is in the Air Force and I didn't realize this, he's stationed in such a way that he can take a jet anytime he wants to and fly wherever he wants to. He just has to log and he was sharing that he's now done two flyovers over camp because he's just getting his hours. But I said, so where did he leave from? Oh, he, he left from Milwaukee, so how long did that take? I thought you said he could only fly for an hour. Oh, it was about 20 minutes. You can get from Milwaukee to Village Creek in 20 minutes if you're traveling in a, a jet. The reality is that's how we like to get there. And we wonder, God, why don't you just simply propel me at the speed of sound to the place you want me? He says, no, no. I want you to walk. I want you to walk worthy of the Lord. What does a life worthy of the Lord look like? Well, he's going to give us four qualities, and let me quickly go through them. The first is bearing fruit. The New Testament is going to use fruit in five different ways. I stole this from Dr. David, David Jeremiah. I'm not nearly bright enough to come up with five alliterated C's, but it's used for character, conduct, conversation, contributions, and converts. In this particular text, last week, he talked about the fruit of converts. This week, he talks about the fruits of character, the fruits of, uh, of good works. Are you bearing good works? No. In a good evangelical circles, we're going to say, Dan, do you believe good works are important? Don't you know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. You ever read verse 10? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
I am not saved by works, but I am most definitely saved for works. And in fact, I would suggest the only way I can know that I have faith is that I produce works. And Paul is going to say that walking worthy is bearing good fruits. He then is going to say growing. You ever notice how different growth is? I see one little one. My granddaughter is 18 months old. And in those 18 months, she has tripled in weight. What are you going to say next time I'm here and I've tripled in weight? <laughs> Number one, I'm not sure I'll be able to get up on the platform. Somebody might have to help me. If an adult triples in weight, you say, whoa, maybe you shouldn't eat the whole apple pie. It's a danger, but as an infant, growth explodes. May I suggest it's very similar in the Christian life? If you came to Christ later in life, my guess is that you exploded in growth. Every time you opened God's word, it was new and exciting and fresh, and, and you were consumed by it. You couldn't get enough of the preaching and the teaching of God's word. You couldn't spend enough time in prayer. You just exploded in growth. And then you're a Christian for a decade, two decades. In my case, more than five decades. And growth comes harder. I still even though I'm approaching that 60 mark, try and grow physically, stay in shape. You know what? It's a whole lot harder than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Because does that mean it doesn't matter anymore, I can just give up? No, you keep working on it. And I would argue the same thing is true in the Christian life, that we are to grow in our knowledge of God. So let me ask you, what are you doing to grow? Imagine if the only meal you ate for the entire week was Sunday at lunch. Do you think you would survive? Yes. How long would you survive? <laughs> the reality is not very long. You can do it one week, two weeks, three weeks, but I fear that we sometimes think all I need of God's word is what Pastor Orville or whoever he can get to come stand in his place shares with you. But no, growing is a not a daily event. My guess is most of us find a way to consume calories more than once a day. I generally like to consume calories. We won't go there. I consume them far too often. Do I consume God's word as often as I eat? Can I give you a homework assignment? This week, before you grab food to eat, Grab God's word and read at least a verse. See, we're growing because we're not working on it. Paul says that walking worthy is growing in the knowledge. It's being strengthened. It's fascinating. He's going to give us four participles. Three of them are active. We are to bear fruit. We are to grow. And in a second, we're to joyfully give thanks. But in the middle of that is this being strengthened with all power. <laughs> For endurance and for patience. My, my very strong suspicion is, if you're anything like I am, patience is one of your least favorite virtues. I am not a patient person. It, it's a struggle for me to endure under hardship. But I fear sometimes we look at patience incorrectly. 
May I suggest that patience isn't sit around doing nothing? I, when I was in Victor, had the wonderful privilege of being with numerous people who would go through surgeries. And I have been with people as the surgeon came in for hip replacement, knee replacement, elbow replacement, almost every joint replacement. It's amazing what they can replace now. But the surgeon would almost always give the same speech. When you wake up after this surgery, you're going to be in pain. Be patient. You will see tremendous growth if you're patient. May I suggest they forget part of the equation? Because between the time of the joint replacement and the time you feel good, there's this legalized torture they call therapy. <laughs> I had a lady in church that went to therapy one time and it was too painful and she quit. She never walked again. Because therapy is patience. Even though it's uncomfortable and painful, you go. And may I suggest that is a biblical picture of endurance. That we put up with the pain because we see the prize. Paul says then finally to give thanks joyfully. And he's going to end, and I don't really have time to spend a lot of time on it, but Paul is going to lay out this amazing thing that you and I have to give thankful for. That Christ qualified you. You didn't qualify yourself for heaven. Christ qualified you. He rescued you. He brought you into the, the dominion of his son. He provided redemption and forgiveness of sins. Sometimes it's hard to find things to give thanks for. Go back to Colossians chapter 1 and just read verses 12 through 14. And there is so much we will be eternally grateful. Very quickly, let me just leave you with a couple suggestions. Can I encourage you to find somebody to pray with? It's important to pray alone, but it's also important to pray with someone. Secondly, can you find time each day to make certain that you're growing in the knowledge of God's Word? And then I challenge you to begin each day with Thanksgiving. Father, I thank you for the few moments we've had to go through this incredible prayer that Paul God, I, I pray that you would take something and apply it to each of our hearts so that we would leave changed, more conformed to the image of your dear son. And we thank you and praise you for it is in Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Pray for your safety, dragging. Thank you.